こんにちはバークレーサイエンスグロックの時間がやってまいりましたはい。
And they showed that the relative frequency of this gene in populations has a variation that suggests that it's been kept in check because of cannibalism. Wow, so it's like a Jekyll and Hyde syndrome in the humans, huh? Well, <laughs> certainly you don't want a lot of these proteins in your system if you're eating one another, right? Right. So it's sort of been kept at a steady state low variance, they suggest. Hmm. A recent study actually done by geneticist John Bertrit at Pampo Fabra University in Barcelona, Spain, has suggested another alternative analysis. This time they actually looked at all the possible variations of this PRMP gene. Mm-hmm. And using their statistical analysis, they say, well, it might not actually be true that cannibalism was quite so prevalent and the selection methods maybe not true. So there's some controversy whether or not the earlier study is true or not here. Mm-hmm was published in a recent edition of Genome Research. And the first study by John Colling, it was published in a recent edition of Science. So who does your laundry, Charles? I just throw away my clothes and buy new ones. Okay, or pick it up off the street, right? <laughs> well, if I'm lucky. <laughs> so there may actually be an easier way to do your clothes in the near future. Rather than washing it? Just using air. Some students at National University of Singapore have designed a washing system that does not require water or detergent and basically uses air, negative ions, and some antibacterial agents to clean your clothes. And it's just sort of embedded in the fiber itself? Uh, no, so it, you can take any clothes, and it's, this is, works well especially with a uh, expensive and sensitive fibers. So you put it on this little rack and as it goes through the machine, it passes the combination of air and negative ions Uh and it picks up the dirt and anything that might smell and uh, remove it without using any water. Oh, wow. How far away is this from being developed then? Well, right now with the technology they have, it takes about 3 to 12 minutes to clean one piece of clothes, but Mm -hmm. I'm sure once they optimize it, this could be a common household appliance in probably not so far future. Wow. It might actually be useful enough for me to start washing my clothes then. This group of students won the Electrolux Group's award for design of appliances last year, and uh, this was widely reported in the uh, popular media. And finally, Frank, are you able to hold your liquor? Actually, not very well. (laughs) Well, that's probably good news because that means you're not a girl. (laughs) And I still have a liver. Although there are other ways you can destroy your liver as well. (laughs) But it turns out that females apparently are much better at holding their liquor than males. Really? And one of the reasons why this might be is due to their hormones. Oh, their hormones? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. This is a recent study that was done by Scott Schwarzwelder of Duke University Medical Center in Durham, North Carolina. And what he did was studied alcohol consumption in rats, both young rats, adolescents, and adult rats. And in adolescents, both male and females seem to have the same tolerance. But in the adult rats, it was shown that the male and female rats, uh, the female rats were actually better able to tolerate their alcohol. Is it because they have better developed livers at that point, or what, what's the uh, uh, well, physiology? The, apparently, they suggest it's a, it's due to the estrus cycle. Okay. Because uh, they noticed as they're injecting alcohol into these rats at different times in their cycle, mm-hmm. that both pre and post estrus, female rats actually had better tolerance. Okay. How about pregnant rats? <laughs> 
Sure, I, I wonder if uh, that's even ethical to test. It doesn't seem like a very good experiment no. to do. Well, uh, who knows? If you're trying to mimic human behavior, maybe it might be worthwhile. But <laughs> <laughs> So it was quite interesting, actually. They did two assays. One was just basically measuring how long it took for these drunk rats to actually start standing up on their feet. Okay. <laughs> and the other one was they actually looked at the rat brains at different cycles. Okay. And they saw that actually neurotransmitter impact was much less when the estrus cycle was low. Oh. Again, fascinating work just shows that the hormone cycle may have a strong relation to why females actually are able to tolerate alcohol better. Wow, another confirmation that I'm a guy. <laughs> it's good to know because sometimes self-doubt creeps in. <laughs> uh, published in a recent edition of Alcoholism Clinical and Experimental Research. And that's all for a look at current developments in the world of science and technology this week. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM, KALX. In a few moments, Professor David Leivitt joins us to talk about the life and times of Alan Turing. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. Well, the invention of the computer may be further back than many of us think. It was not invented by Microsoft, nor Apple, nor even Xerox, but the concept of a computing device actually was formulated back in the 30s by the great Alan Turing. And joining us today is our special guest, author David Levitt, who will tell us about the life of Alan Turing and his new book, The Man Who Knew Too Much. Dr. Levitt, thanks for joining us today on Berkeley Rocks. Thanks for having me. First of all, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work with uh, writing? Well, I'm a novelist and a short story writer, uh, and I never imagined that I would end up being a science writer. Uh, I was asked to write this book by James Atlas, who's the organizer of the series Great Discoveries. And initially, I was interested in Turing really in terms of his life. Um, he was in, in, he was a, an openly gay man at a time when, in England, when that was not a particularly safe thing to be. And he was ultimately prosecuted and persecuted and committed suicide. Uh, as I worked further on the book, I became increasingly interested in, in, in Turing's imagination and in his writings and in the uh, extraordinary work that he did both as a codebreaker during World War II and as really the architect of the, if not of, of a, the first computer, then certainly of the 
idea of the modern computer. I should say that there there were computing devices before Turing going back to Babbage in Mm the 19th century, but Turing was really the first person who conceived of the idea of a universal machine that could be fed instructions and that on the basis of those instructions could do an infinite number of things. Great. I guess one of the uh, one of his greatest legacies is the uh, Turing test, where you're supposed to uh, have a test of a device to see if you can distinguish whether it's actually a person or you know uh, or a computer. Uh, maybe you could talk a lot about this a little bit. Yeah, this is one of the most fascinating papers that Turing wrote. He actually never used the term Turing test. That was really applied later. Uh, he called it the imitation game. And the idea was initially he posed it as a game where you would have a man and a woman and an interrogator or a questioner. None of them could see each other, hear each other's voices. And the idea mm-hmm. was was for the interrogator on the basis of their answers to guess which was the man and which was the woman. And he then posited changing the game so that it was a man and a computer, although his language is a little ambiguous, which has, has led to a lot of philosophical speculation about gender and sexuality in the paper. Mm. <clears throat> um, but essentially, Turing believed that behavior and identity were equivalent, mm-hmm. and that if a computer could persuade you that it was human, then in a sense, it was. It could see said to think. Um, and this, the major objection to this from a philosophical standpoint was, was, well, if it can merely imitate thinking, does that, is that equivalent to thinking? And Turing's answer would be yes, because Turing again believed that behavior was identity. And this is actually based on an old uh, English parlor game, is that right? Viva Voce, it's called, yeah. Yeah, he, gives, he talks about that a lot in the paper. During World War II, he was also involved in cryptography, uh, especially with cr- breaking uh, German codes, and certainly the um, the British government was very um, uh, in need of his, his service, but after, um, I guess, his disclosure of being an openly gay person, they tried to purge him from the service. What effect did that have on his life? Well, the chronology was a little bit different in the sense that after the war, uh, he went back, first he went back to Cambridge, and then eventually he ended up at Manchester, where he was working on the Manchester computer. Um, <clears throat> What happened was through a whole series of of, of uh, Turing. Turing was 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 allergic to dishonesty. He was always very very open, and he had been mm-hmm. having an affair with a working class youth, a young man. He was robbed. He reported it to the police. The police in the course of investigating the robbery discovered the affair and arrested him under the Gross Indecencies Act, which was still uh, which was actually not only. Um, law still at that point, but but because of of, of Cold War paranoia, there was there was it, it was being enforced much more stringently, mm-hmm. and I think it was at that point that he was really deemed a security risk because he was considered potentially uh, a, a, a likely victim of blackmail um, due to the fact that he did have all this secret information about the 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 code breaking effort, which which the British government did not want to get out. Mm-hmm. Indeed, he had a, a rather tormented life. Um, did his personal life play a big role in his um, intellectual work, or were they somehow independent? <clears throat> no, I think it played a huge role in his in his work. I think he 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 was perpetually uh, perceived himself as an outsider, and uh, he was also very literal minded <clears throat> and very honest. And uh, for example, the way that he came up with the idea of the Turing machine was was that he was looking for uh, he he was he was trying to prove or disprove the decision problem, which was the third of the three 
problems that Hilbert posed, along with the question of the completeness and the consistency of mathematics, which Gödel had already demolished. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, his teacher, Max Newman, said, is there a mechanical, uh, I think the phrase that he used was a, um, a mechanical process by which the decidability of a problem can be shown. Well, he heard the word mechanical, and he's thought literally of a machine. So uh, later on, particularly in his work, uh, he, he would often talk about machines as if they were an oppressed minority. He would talk about their rights. He would mm-hmm. call for, as he put it, fair play to the machines. And my feeling is that a lot of that encoded a sense of, of the injustice that was being that experienced in those days, particularly by by homosexual men and women, and and he was really there. There, there was there was a way in which he was putting a lot of his own feelings about that into his writings about computers. The title of your book is "The Man Who Knew Too Much." Um, what exactly does that mean to you? Well, I mean the title to have uh, in in a way two meanings. Um, first of all, to suggest that that. His knowledge was was vast. He he was a man of, of extraordinary intellect and intellectual capacity and imagination, but he was also the man who knew too much in the sense that that he ultimately proved too dangerous for the world that he lived in. He was ahead of his time, mm-hmm. and his ideas were were perceived as very very threatening. And he was not only perceived as threatening because of his code breaking work and the idea that he might pose a security risk. He was also perceived as threatening because his idea of a computer that could think, his his fascination with artificial intelligence not only was not only deeply subversive and offensive to the Anglican Church, it was frightening to the British public, which imagined this kind of Orwellian scenario in which the machines took over. Mm-hmm. So in researching your book, um, did you actually get to travel to uh, England or did you meet part of his, uh, some members of his family? None of his, No members of his family are still alive. I did travel to England. I went to Cambridge. I went to King's College and, and uh, King's College, the archivist there, Rosman Mode, was very, very helpful to me and let me look through a lot of Turing's papers. Most of them are online now. Uh, the Turing Digital Archive is a wonderful resource. Mm-hmm. Um, I also went to Bletchley Park, which is where uh, he lived during the war and where most of the code breaking took place, which was also very fascinating. Um, and uh, that was very, very helpful in a sense because it gave me what I think every writer needs, which is a, a sense of exactly where all this was taking place intellectually. So uh, that was that was very interesting. Uh, most of the research I did involved reading original documents, original papers. Um, I try in the book to actually explain Turing's first important paper, his paper on um, computable numbers, using Turing's own method. Most books on Turing use a sort of a, a simpler, more contemporary way. Turing did it in a very complicated way. It was it was needlessly complicated. He could have mm-hmm. done the proof more simply. But I think his method is extremely interesting and clever. And that's why I decided to, I really wanted to go through the proof exactly as Turing went through the proof, but try to make it accessible to someone who is as non-mathematical as I am. <laughs> <laughs> 
And besides his code breaking and his uh, work on artificial intelligence, uh, what other legacies did uh, Alan Turing have? Well, uh, his he he was very restless mm-hmm. intellectually. As soon as he reached a point where something was developing, he would want to move on. So there were a lot of kind of unfinished legacies. He he tried very hard to prove or disprove the Riemann hypothesis. He managed to add a few zeros to the list of the <laughs> zeta zeros using a machine that he built. Towards the end of his life, he did work on morphogenesis, which was an attempt to create a mathematical model for genetic processes. And that's probably the aspect of his work that I deal with the least in the book. He really became more and more interested in biology mm. towards the end of life and, 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 and the area in which there was a synergy between biology and mathematics. He left a lot of unfinished, half-built machines, uh, gear wheels for an attempt to build a... Uh, cryptographic machine. This was before Bletchley Park, a, a machine for, for generating code, as well as for the, the, the Riemann hypothesis, the Zeta Zero machine. So his intellectual his, his legacy was vast. And considering how young he was when he died, uh, he did an amazing amount. And finally, um, I, I guess there's some ambiguity as to how he died, whether it was by accidental poisoning or by suicide. Um, what's your own feeling on this? Well, he died... He, he, he ate an apple dipped in cyanide, which was a, a, a nod to the Disney movie of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which he was kind of obsessed with. He, mm-hmm. So was Girdle, inter- interestingly. <laughs> he would apparently walk along around the Cambridge, Cambridge campus reciting uh, the, the spell that the witch uh, puts on the apple, dip the apple in the brew, let the seeping, sleeping death seep through. The, con- the assumption is that he committed suicide. That said... He didn't appear to be in a particularly suicidal frame of mind when he died. Hmm. However, a lot of people commit suicide when they don't appear to be in a suicidal frame of mind. He was considered a major security risk, and this was was at the absolute height of Cold War war paranoia, and a lot of the documents are still classified. So if you ask me the question, is there the possibility that his, his suicide was faked, that he was actually killed? I think it's a possibility. That said, I'm not entirely sure if the government wanted to knock him off, why they would choose such a complicated ruse as to have him commit suicide by eating an apple dipped in cyanide. I mean, there, there would have been simpler ways to do it. And, and someone very sophisticated and who knew him very well would have to have been involved. So I think it's an open question. We're running a little bit out of time. Um, are there any last words you'd like to add about yourself or uh, this book or any future books you have? Um, well, the book has sort of uh, made, opened up in me an incredible fascination with mathematicians, and I'm actually now writing a novel about a mathematician. Uh, Mr. De- Levitt, thank you so much for joining us today on Berkeley Grox. Well, thanks for having me. And we were just talking to David Levitt, professor of English from University of Florida. His new book, The Man Who Knew Too Much, The Life and Times of Alan Turing, is now available at bookstores and online. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. Coming up, the Grokotron 5000 and the question of the week. So stay tuned.
Welcome back to Berkeley Grox. Well, Mr. Levitt has kindly agreed to join us on this week's edition of the Grokatron 2000. This week's question is the Turing test, pass or no pass, and here are five subjects. Subject number one, Oprah Winfrey, the Turing test, pass or no pass? I'm going to say no pass. No pass? Well, bear in mind that the in a Turing test, a computer is encouraged to... to give wrong answers to to be a little bit evasive to, to do everything that you could that it could to persuade you that it's human oh you and, mean like lie <laughs> yeah like lie i i don't know i think that oprah winfrey would seem like a very very good fake human being oh, so i'm okay. going to say no pass all right subject 2 um i guess a human being of a different type um michael jackson Oh, pass, definitely. <laughs> definitely. He's, he's weird enough to be a human. Yeah, huh? I don't think, yeah, I think he's inimitable. <laughs> All right, um, subject number three, George Lucas, creator of Star Wars. I'm going to say pass. So his dialogue is good enough or bad Oh, enough? the dialogue that in the movies. <laughs> oh. I thought you meant in an interview with him. Uh-huh. Oh, in an interview with him, he would he would pass. I don't think the dialogue in the movies would pass. No. <laughs> you mean like what Luke Skywalker says? Yes. No, 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 no. Definitely not. Although C-3PO possibly. <laughs> He's a human-cyborg relation. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> robot, right? Yeah. All right. Subject number four. Um, the President of the United States, George W. Bush... Pass or no pass? Oh, unfortunately, I'm going to have to say pass. Uh, the, there, there is is no way that 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 anything as intelligent as a machine could utter those remarks <laughs> makes all the time. He's too stupid to to be a computer. All right, and um, finally, I guess uh, a cel- a celebrity of a different type, uh, John Stewart. Oh, he would pass. Okay, no question, no question. He's very human. <laughs> but I mean, the, the the interesting about the Turing test isn't so much whether humans seem like computers as whether computers <laughs> seem human. So I mean, what I would be interested to know would be whether sort of famous robots would pass. You know, like the the robot from Lost in Space, or <laughs> uh, yes, <laughs> or you know R two D two or something like that. Uh-huh. That could be kind of an amusing. Those could for a future uh, episode of what, Grokatron five thousand. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So when you say uh, George W. Bush does not pass, or I mean passes, I, I think there's a degree of stupidity that that even a computer could not imitate. Uh-huh. Uh, you you would have to be a human being to 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 utter those remarks. I mean, Turing might disagree. <laughs> I think Turing would feel that a that a computer that had been properly programmed could could even uh, persuade you. Uh, that it was George Bush, but of course George Bush didn't exist in those days, so I don't know whether it may, it may be a level of stupidity that Turing hadn't even conceived. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining us on this week's edition of the Grokatron Five Thousand. Oh, this has been great fun. <clears throat> and Yoda with the answer to last week's question of the week: What are fractals? <clears throat> Mysterious and beautiful they are, but simple their sources. Fractals are geometrical mappings of values of a recursive complex equation. Mm. And that's what fractals are. Yo, dude, lock peace, brother, and freedom, man. Everything needs to be free, like even the Gibbs free energy. But what is it? Well, if you know the answer or think you know the answer, you can email us at grocks at hotmail.com. Dude, you're not going to win anything, but you'll feel the freedom. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us at Berkeley Grox, email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.
Hey, hey, hey.